Then the chief cupbearer said to, to, uh, to Pharaoh, sorry, <laughs> uh, I remember my offenses today. When the Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, and he and I having a dream of its own interpretations. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When he told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh said and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph said to Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed on reed grass. Seven other cows came out after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. And when they had eaten them, so no one, and when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as in the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouting after them. And then the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magician, and there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of good plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The, fam the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of, of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the foods in the city and let them keep it. These foods that shall be the reserve of the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we've been working our way through Genesis for like a year now. It's, it's one thing to say walking. We're really crawling our way through Genesis. And we are in the home stretch. There's only two or three weeks left of Genesis, which I know is sad for everybody. But after that, just get, let you know what's coming as we're going to do a, a short series on our vision and our values. Those have changed in the past couple of years. We've 
we've um, kind of narrowed in what our vision and values are and how to communicate them. And so it's exciting to be able to, to give that to you in sermonic form. Um, and then after that, we're going to be doing a series on uh, the book of John. Yes, sermonic is a word. I see you all chatting, okay? <laughs> Uh, after that, we're going to be doing a, a series on the book of John, and that's going to take at least another year. So we're, we're doing some of the bigger books of the Bible. For years, we would do these short books and just kind of, but it's like if you only do short books, you eventually run out of them, and so that's kind of what happened. And so we're doing all these longer books, which I'm, I just find to be enjoyable. The last 13 chapters of Genesis really focus on just one story, and that's the story of Joseph. There is one chapter that's kind of a, a, a break from the action, but we've already covered that. So I told you guys several weeks ago when we first started the Joseph narrative that um, back when I was a kid, I was in a play called Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, it was a part of the project that my school was doing, and uh, it was, it was a, a fun time for me and something that I remember. And every time I read Joseph, I can't he help but to think about that play. So in my mind, Pharaoh in this story is Elvis, and there's no other way to see him, but he is Elvis. And uh, I, um, amazingly, uh, this team from Mississippi here this week is actually from the church where I first became a Christian, where I first met Jesus. And uh, the director of the play that I was in has come to help. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. She really did uh, to help with our kids' summer adventure this week and to tell embarrassing stories to my children about my childhood. And so we're really glad to have this team here this week and, and, and thankful for that. Uh, so in this Joseph narrative, let me catch you up with where we are in case you haven't been here each week. Uh, it's a long story, but I, you know, I can catch you up pretty quickly uh, to where we're at. We're right in the middle of this Joseph narrative. So Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. Uh, we've been following this one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. It's four generations that you follow through most of Genesis except for the first 11 chapters. And uh, J Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob has these 12 sons that would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And with these 12 sons, um, each one becomes a tribe. And Jacob has a favorite. His favorite is Joseph. He gives Joseph special gifts. He gives Joseph special treatment. And Joseph knows it and he likes it. He walks around and he flaunts it, just like any child would if they were their parents' favorite. And it was obvious. You guys know. You have siblings. And you know that one. That really is the... Uh, most of you are like, yeah, it's me. Um, so Joseph is flaunting it, and then he has these wonderful dreams, at least in his mind. His brothers didn't think they were so wonderful. He has two dreams about how his brothers and his family will be bowing down to him. And he goes and he tells them, guys, you won't believe the dream I had. It was great. I was the king, and you were all bowing down to me. And his brothers didn't think too kindly of that. And so they said, this dreamer, he's got to go. And so at first they decided to kill him, but then they said, look, 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 what's the gain for us to kill him? Let's sell him into slavery. That way we get rid of Joseph and we make a little bit on our, for ourselves. So you have two birds, one Joseph. Easy. You, you take them both out. So Joseph sold into slavery, and he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar, who is, one of the, chief, who is the chief guard for Pharaoh. Uh, one of the most powerful men in the entire world at this point. He's a military leader. And Joseph is given great responsibility. Everywhere he goes, he's given great responsibility. But in the house of Pharaoh, he is a slave, but he's, all things considered, things are going pretty well for him. He, in the house of Potiphar, excuse me, things are going pretty well for him. He's given a lot of responsibility. No one has power over him. He's 
ordering all of Potiphar's affairs except for his wife wants to have an affair with him. And so Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph over and over and over again. She will not leave it alone. Joseph refuses all of her advances. But then one day, she says it very plainly, and she grabs him by the the garment, pulls the garment off as Joseph runs away without his dignity, but with his integrity intact. And then she tells a lie on Joseph and says, look, this slave that you brought in here, Potiphar, he tried to rape me. You need to get rid of him. And so they took, she was so embarrassed, they took him, they threw him in the prison. And that's where we ended a couple of weeks ago when we were going, or last week when we were going through that story. But chapter 39 ends with a glimmer of hope. It says, the last three verses, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one that did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph is just given responsibility everywhere he goes. And really, I cannot, as someone who is in charge of a few things, not anything like like the magnitude of this, but in charge of a few things, there's almost no better compliment that I could give someone than I don't have to worry about it at all if you're in charge of it. That's like the highest compliment that I can give someone. I can forget about this thing because I know that you're handling it. And so Joseph is a man who's living in to all of this responsibility. And this is where we pick up the story. Joseph is in prison. And with this story, we're going to, we only read one section of uh, chapter 41, but we're going to cover both Genesis 40 and 41. Um, And if you were to chart out Joseph's life up until this point, it would go a little bit like this. Like he starts okay, you know, pretty good in, in the home of his father, and you know, they're pretty wealthy. But then he's almost murdered, thrown, thrown, his coat is ripped off of him, he's thrown into a pit, almost murdered, sold into slavery, that's pretty low. And then things get a little bit better as he's in Potiphar's house, but then he's thrown into prison, so he's even lower. So at this point in the story, we're at the very bottom of the pit, and that's where we pick up with where Joseph is. And in fact, they call it the pit. They call the prison the pit, which is interesting because he was thrown into a pit at the beginning by his brothers, and now the prison is referred to as a pit. It's an interesting way that they chose to tell the story. All right, so we're going to pick up Genesis chapter 40. If you have your Bibles, it's always most beneficial if you have your Bibles open uh, to this chapter. Genesis 40, starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, after Joseph was thrown into jail, at this point we know that Joseph is 28 years old. We know this because in a few chapters, it, it kind of reveals it. At this point, Joseph's been in Egypt for 11 years between Potiphar's house and prison. We don't know what the divide is between those two, but he spent the majority of his adult, adult life, all of his adult life, in either slavery or in prison. It has not been going well. He got sold into slavery when he was 17. Now he's 28 in prison. Verse 1, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So the cupbearer and the baker are thrown into prison. You might think, why choose the cupbearer and the baker? Well, these are the two people that had 
um, had contact, or really all the food pretty much had to go through, the cupbearer and the baker, and so maybe Pharaoh had a, a tummy ache one morning, and he decided someone's going to pay for this. And I'll tell you what, every time I've had a, st- a stomach bug or something like that, I would have thrown someone in prison myself if I had the power for it. So I kind of resonate with Pharaoh a little bit here. Um, and so he's throwing the chief cupbearer cup and the baker into prison. Uh, these are some of Pharaoh's most trusted advisors. I know it doesn't sound like that they're the most trusted advisors. I mean, it doesn't sound like very glorious positions, right? Someone's holding a cup, another person is just the baker. You would think that like the secretary of defense, maybe Potiphar himself or someone like that would be the person that would have Pharaoh's ear, but it wasn't like that. In fact, the world still kind of works like this. I'm always amazed every time I watch a TV show about the workings of the White House with who has the ear of the president. Because you would hope or you would think that, you know, the Secretary of State, the Vice President, the Secretary of Defense, these people would have the ear of the president. No, the people that have the ear of the president is like the secretary. Not the secretary of anything, just the secretary. Or the bag man, the guy who follows the president around with the president's bag. Or the chief security officer. These are the people who really have a lot of influence because they're talking with the president all the time. And in so many ways, the chief cupbearer and the baker are in the same type of position. They're talking with the president, all, with the pharaoh, all the time. And so they're given a position of great influence and responsibility. Now, not too long after they're thrown into prison, they have dreams. And each of their dreams are really similar, so they're talking about it. As they're in prison, they're talking about these dreams. And Joseph, he's in charge of everything. He's walking around. He sees these two guys, high-ranking officials in Pharaoh's court. And he says, hey, why do you look so sad? What's up? What's going on? And they say, we've both had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them for us. And Joseph says, what do you know? I happen to be an expert on dreams. Last time I interpreted a dream, it ended up getting me thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. But, you know, he's got that irrational confidence about him. Joseph is like the guy at the Y who has no conscience whatsoever. He's been chucking up threes all game, and then there's three seconds left. The ball's in his hand, and he just shoots it again. No conscience whatsoever. That's Joseph. He's just irrationally confident at all times. But sometimes the people who are irrationally confident actually hit it in that moment. And so they tell Joseph their dreams, and they sound like just these normal, crazy dreams. Like, have you ever shared a dream with someone? It, and then that person just looks at you and it's like, okay, <laughs> weird. Like, but it's just something that I realized as I grew into adulthood that I should stop doing. Stop sharing your dreams. People are going to think you're a weirdo because all dreams sound weird. And so these dreams, they sound really weird. Uh, but Joseph hears it, and he says, what, what he says is, not that I can interpret the dream, but don't the interpretations belong to God? And so this is where his irrational confidence comes from. Joseph doesn't have irrational confidence in himself, but in the one true God of Israel. Now notice, he's been in, he's been in prison, sold out of the land of Israel. He hasn't seen another Hebrew person speaking his father's language he hasn't seen anybody who worships the one true god yahweh in 11 years but he has not lost hope he's staying strong he's saying i might be in this pit i might be sold in slavery but god gave me dreams one time 
And I know that he's going to come through on that because I worship the one true God. And he said the interpretations belong to God. And so as he hears these stories from the baker and from the cupbearer, he knows the interpretation immediately. It comes right to him. The cupbearer shares, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph says, well, I know what that means. That means in three days, you're going to be lifted out of here, and you're going to be reinstated back into your position as chief cupbearer. Now, the baker, he hears the favorable uh, interpretation from Joseph, and he says, ooh, do me next. And so he shares the dream with Joseph, and he says, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And again, Joseph, he knew the interpretation immediately because God had given him the wisdom to interpret this, and he said, well, I know what that means too. That means that you're also going to be lifted up out of here, but your head's going to be lifted up before the rest of your body because you're going to the gallows in three days. Pharaoh does not think that you should be reinstated. You're going to die. And what do you know? In three days' time, the, pharaoh, the baker is put to death and the cupbearer is reinstated. And on his way out, as the cupbearer hears his interpretation, Joseph says, now you're about to go have the ear of the king and please remember me. Remember me. I'm in prison. Get me out of here. I'm helping you. But chapter 41, it ends with no hope. It ends, the pit If the pit is already down here, it goes a little lower because this is the very bottom of Joseph's existence because it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. There's nothing worse than being forgotten in prison. That's about as low as it gets. Now, there's more to this story and we're going to to get there in just a moment, but let's just take a break briefly and consider whether the Lord still uses dreams in this kind of way. Are dreams something that can tell us about the future or tell us a word from the Lord? There's a lot of different opinions on this, but I'm just going to tell you what I think. And I think that the answer is not usually, but sometimes, okay? Not usually, but sometimes. I think 99% of what you dream is just pure nonsense. It's your brain trying to recuperate, trying to process with what's going on. But I think every once in a while, you might get something and you might say, well, that was weird. And you might think, I need to tell this person about that dream. And it takes a lot of bravery because I've told you that you look like a fool when you share your dream, okay? But if you, if you feel like, hey, it's worth looking like a fool for this one, I need to tell this person about my dream and see if the Lord gives him or her an interpretation, I encourage you to do that. One time, several years ago, now I've, this was a wild experience. Several years ago, um, I had someone call me. It was a former member of our church. Now this person is an intelligent person, just like the rest of you guys, Ivy League educated, all that stuff, okay? It's not someone who's just like uh, off, off the deep end, okay? This is like a, a normal, smart person. He, he called me and he said, hey, I wouldn't normally do this, but I had a dream last night and I, you were in my dream, and I was actually at City on a Hill, Somerville. 
And so I want to tell you about it. And I was like, all right. Now, I've never interpreted a dream in my entire life at this point. And so he tells me the dream. And as he shares the dream with me, I say, now look, this isn't thus saith the Lord, this is thus saith the flesh, but I know exactly what's going on. I know exactly what the Lord wants you to hear. And I'm not going to tell you all the details of the dream because it was weird and you wouldn't understand, but I, I just knew from that moment, I'm like, the Lord is telling you that you need to be in a church with more substance, that where you've landed, this person had moved, that where you've landed is shallow, it's too concerned on just appearing nice to the outside world, and it's not, it doesn't have enough meat of the word being taught, that you need to find a different church that, you're, that you can be a part of. Now, he did not like my interpretation. <laughs> he liked his church. And he said, okay, I'll consider that. I'll consider that. Maybe there's some wisdom there. And he called me like two months later, and he said, you know, thank you so much. Because my wife and I, we joined a new church, and it has been so life-giving. It has been exactly what we've needed. We've come out of that rut, and the Lord has just changed it completely for us. We needed to hear that word. Did the, did the Lord give me a word for him? I think so. I think so. Is that always going to happen if you share your dream with me? I think not. Okay? A lot of times I'm just going to be like, I, I got nothing for you. But this time, I didn't have to go say seven incantations or do any Hail Marys or anything like that. It wasn't a struggle. He just shared the dream with me. I was like, well, I know exactly what it, that means. It wasn't complicated at all. It's just the Lord gave me something to say to him in that moment. Now, one thing that you need to do if you are going to do this, if you are going to practice this, is to always test it by the word. Always test it by the word. Because... If someone has a dream that they're cheating on their wife and leaving their family, and then you interpret it, well, that means you should probably cheat on your wife and, and leave your family. Well, I think God's word has something to say against that, okay? So we, we, this is God's full authority, and we sit under this, but sometimes he gives us a special revelation to help bring this to life for us. And so it has to go to support what the word of God has to say, which I think that what this guy and I were talking about Totally did at that time. Okay, let's continue the story. Oh, first, before we do that, uh, notice that every time a dream is interpreted in this story, it comes in a, in a set of two. Uh, there's always a pair of dreams. Joseph had a pair of dreams. These guys had a pair of dreams. Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. And so uh, it's kind of indicating like, hey, these dreams are special. There's something unique going on here. Now, does that mean that every reoccurring dream that you have has an interpretation? No. But maybe, okay? But may, maybe a little, maybe you pay a little bit more attention uh, when you have it more than once. Maybe. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Don't you love it when we talk about this type of stuff? It's like, sometimes. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, let's continue the story. So Joseph is forgotten in prison. And after two years, what do you know? Pharaoh, the king himself, has a pair of dreams, and he dreams that he's standing on the shore of the Nile, the great river of Egypt, and he sees seven plump, attractive, beautiful cows come out of the Nile, and then he sees seven ugly cows come out of the Nile, and the seven ugly cows eat the seven beautiful cows, and he's, he wakes up, and he says, that was a weird dream, and he goes back to sleep. And when he goes back to sleep, he has another dream with the same sevens. And he has set a dream that there's seven beautiful ears of corn 
appearing. And then there's seven ugly ears of corn. And the seven ugly ears of corn somehow grow mouths and eat the seven beautiful ears of corn. And then he wakes up and he says, someone is trying to communicate something to me. I need an interpretation of these dreams. And so he calls in every magician, every wise person, all the, the fortune tellers and the people that can read your hands and the astrologers and everybody that he can think of. And he brings them in and he tells them his dream and no one gives him an interpretation that he's satisfied with. And at that moment, the cupbearer says, oh, I forgot. I forgot about Joseph. Forgive me, I have forgotten about him. My king, I totally forgot about this guy, but you remember that time when you were a little angry with me and threw me into the prison? Well, there was this Hebrew kid down there, and uh, he gave me a dream interpretation. And so Pharaoh said, go get him. And so they go to Joseph. He's been in an Egyptian prison for a long time now. It's been 13 years, two years since he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer. This is a crazy experience. It has to be for him. Can you imagine? He's been in a foreign prison for most of his adult life. He's grown a wild, long beard. He's not wearing nice clothing. And then all of a sudden, he's called into the throne room of one of the most powerful people in the history of the world at the time. And so they shave him. They put different clothes on him because you can't just appear to Pharaoh in your shabby clothing with a long beard. The Egyptians were clean-faced. And they, they bring him in. And Pharaoh looks at the man and he says, look, I had these dreams and I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph his response might be a little shocking to Pharaoh because what does he say? He, he doesn't say, yep, let me do it. He says, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, this wasn't a complete shock to Pharaoh because Egyptians were polytheistic. They believed in many different gods, but Pharaoh himself believed himself to be a god. All the pharaohs believed themselves to be a god. But this is still a bold statement. Because Pharaoh knows that the Hebrews are monotheistic. He knows that this is a denial of everything that they believe in their Egyptian religions. But yet he still wants to hear Joseph's interpretation of his wild dreams. It would have been easy for Joseph to be intoxicated by the moment, tempting for him to deny God or to just forget about God for that moment and say, yes, I've done this before, let's go. But no, he gives witness to God whether he's in the pit or whether he's at the pinnacle of power, he's always witnessing to who God is and what God has done for him. A lot of times we think that it would be easier to be a witness to God in the pit where you have nothing to lose. But when you're in the pinnacle of power, you have everything to lose. And yet here we have Joseph still witnessing to the power of who God is. As Pharaoh shares his dream, God gives Joseph understanding. He's able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Maybe he's thinking at that moment, this story sounds a lot like my dad's story. My dad, he had to work for seven years to get a beautiful wife, and then my uncle Laban tricked him and gave him an ugly wife. And then he had to work seven more years to, get the to, get, to pay off the beautiful wife. And so some of this seven verbiage that's going on here, it probably triggers in his mind years and the Lord uses that and uses this moment to help him to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And here's what he says. He says, your, your two dreams, they're one. You had one meaning behind your two dreams. And it's this. 
Egypt is about to experience a great harvest. You're going to just have so many fruitful years, seven fruitful years. But then after that, you're going to experience a terrible famine. That's what your dreams mean. And so here's what you should do, Pharaoh. You should appoint someone wise and discerning, you know, like maybe the guy you pulled out of jail to interpret this dream for you. And you should put him in charge. And that person should go around Egypt and organize this massive thing that's never been organized before, you should go around and force everyone to save 20% of their crops every year for the next seven years. This is wild. People are not going to want to give up 20% of their crops just because Pharaoh had a dream. But Pharaoh heard Joseph and the plan that Joseph had, and he said, let's do it. And I think that you're just the man for it. This is a side note, but I just want to point out that Joseph is... You know, he's irrationally confident, but sometimes that's what it takes to be a good leader, is just this irrational confidence. Joseph, he doesn't just see problems, okay? The difference between a follower and a leader is this. A follower will run to someone and say, there's a problem, with no possible solutions. But a leader says, here's an answer, and just jumps to it and tries to find the right people and to put things into position to lead people through the problem. So Joseph, he doesn't just see problems, he sees solutions, and he hops to it. He has a plan the moment he hears the problem. Immediately, when Pharaoh says, why not you, Joseph? Why don't you do this? What happens is that Joseph, he goes from, in the morning, being in the pit, all the way down here, you know, he started here, to going up to the ceiling. I mean, he's gone so far beyond what you would ever imagine. He just shoots all the way to the top because Pharaoh says, you are now my number two. No one will have more power than you, Joseph. And he puts him in Egyptian clothing, the finest clothing he can find, and he gives Joseph his signet ring, which gives him the authority to act as Pharaoh would act. And he says, Joseph, I got a backup chariot. Pull around the Lamborghini with the suicide doors. You're getting in. You're going to ride it, and you're in charge now. You ride around. You're in charge. You're like me. And in fact, I'm not going to worry about it at all because you're in charge of it, Joseph. You're a competent man. He gives Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. In fact, this wife is the daughter of one of the priests of the gods of Egypt. He's trying to assimilate Joseph completely into his Egyptian culture because he wants Joseph to be loyal to him and to execute on this plan. Now, Joseph does execute on the plan perfectly. I want you to see that there's a pattern in Joseph's life, and now it's working in reverse. Here's the pattern. Joseph has shown favor. He's given gifts. He interprets dreams, but it gets him nothing. Instead, his garments are stripped of him, and he's thrown into a pit. This happens with his brothers back in Israel. It happens again in Potiphar's home. But now what do we see happening? It goes in reverse. He's in the pit. He he interprets dreams and it does do favor for him. Then he's clothed with new garments and he receives gifts in response to that. It's like the undoing of the curses that he's been receiving as he's been going along. And so Joseph spends the next 14 years of his life serving Pharaoh in this way, serving in the highest court, having pretty much ultimate power, being one of the most powerful people in the world. Egypt is one of the most powerful nations. And during, and at the, during the seven years, the second seven years, 
nations from all over the world start going to Egypt because they hear that Egypt has food. And so Egypt is blessed. They're given money and wealth and jewels because all of these nations, they come and bring what they have of worth to buy what Egypt has of worth, which is food that nobody else has. There's a great famine throughout all the land. And Joseph looks over it all and does it all. Now I want to wrap up with two points of observation and application for you here. And the first one is this. God wants to bless the whole world through the children of Abraham. God wants to bless the whole world through the children of Abraham. If you remember when God first called Joseph, first called Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, one of the first things that he says to Abraham is this promise. And he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you may be so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that promise is being weaved through this entire story. And by the time we get to the end of Genesis now, we have Abraham's great-grandson Joseph, and what's happening, but through Joseph, because he's faithful to God, all the nations of the earth, the known earth at that point, are being blessed. They're being given life. But we see an even greater fulfillment of this in Jesus. Because with Jesus, he says all nations will be blessed. And then when he calls us as his disciples at the end of his life, he says, go throughout all nations and make disciples. No longer is the blessing of God tied to an ethnic-specific group. It's for all peoples. And so he opens the storehouses and he says, the word of God is for everyone. All people everywhere experience the good news about Jesus Christ, that he has come to reconcile sinner and God. And so he sends us out as people to bless all nations. As we share the message of God, all nations are blessed. And so he's called us to be a part of this promise. We will model Joseph in many ways by letting the word of God, the, the nutrition of the soul, go throughout all nations. The king wants to invite people to feast at his table. And we have the invitations. The second observation, application, I want to point out to you is this. Joseph is the same person in the pit as he is at the pinnacle of his power. Joseph is the same person in the pit as he is at the pinnacle of his power. We've all seen this story play out. You know, we knew someone in high school or something, and then now that person's a big shot. They've got a big job. They're doing well for themselves, and they're just not the same person. They're, they're too big for their shoes, too big for their pants, whatever it is that they're wearing on their lower half of the body. I don't know what, I, what I'm saying. But they, they're different. We've all heard the famous quote before, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we know that extended time at the top of society can work an incredible ugliness in the soul. This is true in a big scale or a small scale. What happens when you get bumped to first class when you're flying coach? 
immediately you start thinking you're better than all those coach people. And you're like, go use your own bathroom. This one's for me. It's like, well, you paid for the same ticket. But the power doesn't corrupt Joseph. It would have been really tempting for Joseph to go into that throne room and to just neglect to say anything about God. But he doesn't. He stands as a witness in the pit and at the pinnacle of his power. He witnesses the power of God. And even though he's given an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife and Egyptian clothes, he doesn't forget the one true God of Israel. When we read, continue reading in the latter half of chapter 41, Joseph has two children through his Egyptian wife. But you can't miss this. He names his children with Hebrew names. He does not give them Egyptian names. He refuses to assimilate completely. He knows where he came from. He doesn't abandon God because he's now in a position of power. Look, church, whether you're in a metaphorical pit at the moment or if you're in a position of power, God is calling you to be a witness to his glory wherever you are. With whatever opportunity, with whatever leadership, with whatever influence you have, God is calling you to witness to who he is. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. Now, there are a lot of us are in important places, and we work in companies, and we work in, in schools, and we, we know people. But I want you to just take a moment to imagine, what if every person from the, the top of Harvard University, from the pinnacle of power in our, universe, in our school, in our, in our world, in our city, to the, the janitor of Bunker Hill Community College, or whoever we can think of, I mean, what if every person in our city knew at least one Christian who they respected well, who was open about their faith? What do you think that would do to their perception of what Christianity is? Many of our people in the city of Boston do know that person, but that person refuses to give testimony to who God is, to even mention it, or even talk about what, what their plans on Sunday is. I remember a few years ago, I was talking to a scientist who was finally outed as being a Christian. He had been in his lab for several years studying stem cells or something like that, and someone, people would ask, well, what'd you do this weekend? And he'd be like, oh, I played softball. It was with the church league, right? And he just would never mention it. And then one day he's like, and I went to church. And they're like, you go to church. And they, they respected it. They didn't judge him. What if everyone in Boston knew one Christian that they respected? And what do you think would happen as they have questions about their faith? And if they wanted to talk about these things? They might. They might talk to you. If they respect you. If you can be a normal human at the same time as giving him glory. So are you willing to give God glory both in the pit and when you're lifted up? Are you the same person all the time? Or are you a chameleon changing your colors depending on what area you're standing in? The ultimate fulfillment for this would also be found in Jesus. He's the same person with the lowest, with the down and out as he is with the highest in society. He is not wooed by position or power. He speaks with strength and he speaks with generosity and mercy and forgiveness. He's the same person with the poor and the homeless and the hurting as he is at the right hand of the God, the powerful universe, of the God, the high king of the universe. He's the same person, rich in mercy, lavishing us in love. 
He's the same person all the way through. He wants to bless others and he will not stand for injustice. It is who he is. He's not intimidated. And friends, one day, you will be called into that great courtroom. You will be called to the throne room of God. Each and every one of us. You may feel like you're in the pit now, but you will be summoned. And he will see you for who you are and for how you acted in the pit and for how you act then. And he will see that none of us deserves the grace that he's given to us. That's why it's grace. But at that moment, if you are trusting in Christ, the righteous robes of Jesus will cover over you. You will be given these clothes. You will be given a crown, not because you earned it, but because Jesus loves you, because he adores you, because he wants you to share in the experience that he has experienced throughout eternity past, which is the glory of the Trinity. He wants you to know the love of the Father. That's his deepest prayer. As he prays, he says, may your people be one as we are one, God. He wants us to know him fully. And when we're called into that throne room, the terrifying reality is that none of us can live up to the scrutiny of that moment. His eye goes straight through us. But if you call on Christ, you'll be treated as a child. You'll be given power and glory and dominion and honor forever and ever. Oneness with Jesus and joy in a relationship with the Father. Being welcomed, not just near him, but on the throne with him. He welcomes us in. Revelation 5. He, he says, he, he invites us to sit on his throne with him. It's not like you're going to be far away. He welcomes you in. Not because of what you've done, but because of the righteous clothes that are given to you in Christ as you trust in what he's done on your behalf. Do you believe that? Are you trusting in that? Or are you still trusting in your own behavior to get you out of the pit somehow? Maybe if I'm a good enough person, I'll be pulled out of this pit. The only way that you're pulled out of the pit is through what Christ has done. He pulls you out. He has got to reach down and get you. And so church, let's respond to that today. Let's give him our adoration wherever we are in life. Whatever is going on, whether you're in the pit or in the, in the pinnacle of your power, let's be a witness to who he is and let all nations know the good news of Jesus Christ. We end every Sunday with an invitation to the table, with an invitation, a little foretaste of the communion that we have with God. God is going to have a wedding feast. We're going to enjoy his feast with him in, in heaven forever. And we have a communion meal each week to celebrate what he has done for us and to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal, that you will remind us of the work of Christ on our behalf, that you will help us to receive this meal in good conscience, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us. And God, would you make us witnesses to the ends of the world, to the all nations, that we may glory, that they may glory in what you have done for us, that you may bless all nations. We pray that that mission will not be refused, but that you will push that forward. And Father, we pray that as we prepare to take this meal, that you would prepare our hearts 
And God, help us to worship you completely in spirit and in truth. We pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that they would come to a saving faith and a trust in you, that you would allow us to help them and to walk with them through doubts or struggles. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.